0: Hi, my name is Jim Hemphill, and I'd like to welcome you to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Today I'll be talking with Director of Photography Rodney Taylor, ASC, whose work on the independent film That Evening Sun has been garnering raves from critics and audiences alike ever since the movie premiered at the 2009 South by Southwest Film Festival, where, by the way, it won two major awards. The picture tells the story of Abner Meacham, an aging widower played by Hal Holbrook. As the film begins, Abner has reached a terrible moment in his life when his physical limitations thwart his desire for independence and freedom. He escapes from the retirement community in which his son has placed him and returns to his family property, only to find that his son has leased it to his old nemesis, Lonzo Choate. Refusing to accept the fact that the farm is no longer his, Abner moves into a small shack on the property and hopes that Lonzo will fail to exercise his option to buy the place. Thus begins a battle of wills between Abner and Lonzo, Abner and his son, and Abner and his own haunting memories of a marriage and a life scarred by stubbornness and regrets. Much of that evening sun's power derives from Rodney Taylor's spare yet gorgeous widescreen images, which emphasize both the darkness at the core of Abner's soul and the beauty of the southern landscapes he will soon be leaving behind. Shooting in 35mm anamorphic with a traditional photochemical workflow. Taylor underscores Abner's tendency toward bittersweet nostalgia with a classical look that paradoxically seems modern due to the way it cuts against the grain of current trends in cinematography. Taylor began his career shooting live sports for ESPN and other networks, and he's also been acclaimed for his work on fiction films, such as the Sundance favorite Swimmers and the short film Grind, which was chosen for the International Cinematographers Guild Film Showcase. Rodney's also known for his extensive IMAX work on films including Wired to Win, the Academy Award nominated Alaska Spirit of the Wild and Michael Jordan to the Max. In 2003, he won the Kodak Vision Award for his excellence and versatility in the IMAX format. With that evening sun, Rodney Taylor proves himself to be as accomplished at capturing the intimate moments of an old man in his twilight years as he is at photographing international IMAX epics and kinetic sporting events. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the American Cinematographer podcast series to talk about this extraordinary film. Welcome, Rodney. Thanks. Uh before we get into the technical aspects, I'd just like to get a little background on how you became involved in this project. Uh, when did you get the script, and did you know the director, Scott Teams, before you read the script?
1: I didn't know him before. I had met uh, a mutual friend, Tony Reynolds, who plays the phone man in the film. Tony um, had also introduced Scott to Laura Smith, the producer, and he sent me an email one night very late um, with the script and he said, I think you and Scott would get along really well, and and this is perfect for you. Uh, give it a read. Um, he was not really attached to the project in any way at that point. He just knew Scott had read the script and thought of me. And, um, you know, it was really late at night, so I opened it up, and I said, I'll give, I'll, I'll read five pages of this, and I'll read the rest tomorrow, you know. And I started reading this script, and I couldn't stop. And you know, around two in the morning I finished it and I immediately emailed Tony back and I said, I have to shoot this movie. Um, how can I meet Scott and how can this happen? So, um, fortunately I got to meet Scott. We really hit it off. Um, at the time he was considering some other people, but, um, you know, I just kind of kept after him (laughs) because I just, I just had to shoot this movie. And, um, So over a period of a year while they were fundraising, et cetera, Scott and I began talking about the film, and eventually he asked me to shoot it, and um, I was ecstatic. about it.
0: And uh, leaving aside the particulars of shooting Anamorphic 35 for a minute, uh, I'm wondering how early in the process did you know that you wanted to shoot the film in a widescreen aspect ratio?
1: I wanted to shoot it widescreen pretty much right away. Um, Scott, on the other hand, had originally thought that the film would be in 185, Um, because there was a very limited number of characters in the film. Um, He felt like a lot of the film would be playing one character against another, and that 185 would fit better for that. We'd see more of their body language, et cetera. But um, I guess for films, I just automatically think of widescreen. I love the format, and I love anamorphic format. And I started showing him films. We started watching films together. And eventually, he started thinking more about it, and um, he started thinking, you know, it would be really interesting to see it in widescreen. So, you know, it was a process. Again, we worked together for probably a year before we actually started filming. Um, And there was, in my mind, you know, no hurry to make that decision during that time. It was just, let's watch some films. And I I thought Scott actually had a good point um, about 185 for the film. But um, ultimately, I... I really like anamorphic, and I I find that it's just as powerful for these small interiors we we're going to have in the in the tenant house, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, as it is for widescreen epic films that it's known for.
0: Mm-hmm. And what were some of the films that you watched with him to convince him to go that route?
1: Wow, um, I can't remember. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm trying. One was a uh, film, The Sweet Hereafter, uh-huh. uh, which I love very much. Um, and and Scott does too, um, so that would be one I remember specifically that we watched mm-hmm.
0: um. yeah, uh something interesting about this movie is the way you use the wide frame to convey emotion and tell a story in terms of the the framing, for example, the scenes between Abner and his son uh you know visually emphasize the emotional space between them. there's a i'm thinking of a scene in in the restaurant. Uh, and also even the way you compose shots where they're just on the phone with each other. And I'm wondering, do you, in general, think that that wider frame gives you more latitude in terms of expressing character through composition?
1: I think certainly in that case it did, and it was very purposeful. Um, I guess it's pretty obvious, but it's, um, it's very purposeful that we had them on the edge of screen, and not only on the, on the edge of screen, but they were looking away from each other right. on the edge of screen um, in the phone conversation. Um, that was the first time that we meet the sun and we wanted to show that they're they they could not be further apart. Mm-hmm. Um so in the phone conversation you see um you know Abner looking against the frame and he's right up against it and, and the same for uh, you know, Paul on the other side. And then we carried that through to the restaurant and really short sighted them. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I think it and and you know, in one eight five, you know, it's not well, it's just not, there's not as much space when you do that. So that really long frame that's hanging out there, empty, yeah. um, is very dramatic, I think. And re- and it's interesting, even, um, even audiences with no film background at all have come to me at film festivals and asked about those scenes in particular. So mm-hmm. I think it really does um, hit the audience. And I think the widescreen attributes to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And... Uh so why did you choose to work in a 35 millimeter anamorphic format as opposed to Super 35 or digital or any of the other ways you could have shot right. widescreen?
1: Um, well, this is, um, again, I really love anamorphic mm-hmm. too. Um, so that's always my first um, sort of thought when I'm making a film. Uh, but then for me, I have to make sure that um, the director is also on board for that. and And what I mean by that is that I find there's, um, you know, a small set of lenses, you know, the 50, 75, 100. In this film, we use the 135 occasionally and even the 180 a couple of times. But, you know, that core group of lenses, the 50 through the 100, um, if I feel like a director um, can sort of come along with that and, and know that he's going to be limited to those three lenses for the most part in a character-type film then I think it can be really powerful. And um you know, Scott really understood that immediately and he wanted he embraced that. He really wanted to be um I think in a way limited by the by the lens choices. If I meet with a director, which I've done in the past, who has a, a wide range of lenses he wants to use to tell the story, which is, is perfectly fine for some stories, then I I would probably prefer to shoot Super 35 because there's just a bigger variety of lenses and, um, you know, you can do more with that. I, I find that the longer, longer anamorphics, like we didn't carry a zoom, for instance, on this film at all, mm-hmm. um, I just find it doesn't um, contribute as much to the look to be on such a long lens and anamorphic, you know, that um, the background falls off so much that I, I, I like to see the environment in mm-hmm. in the shot. So, I try to stick to those lenses. So, not every director wants to do that, mm-hmm. you know, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but Scott really embraced it, so that that helped make the decision too. And then another part of this was that I knew that due to the budget of the film, the only way we could make a widescreen film was to do a photochemical finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very low budget film, and you know the DI would have cost an extraordinary amount for our budget. And and I like doing photochemical finish. Um so I knew that we could save a lot of money basically by doing that, which sounds kinda of funny to right. say, but to shoot on you know, I think that this is a great model for an independent film, like to to shoot on film and make a, you know, a um photochemical finish is actually a, a, a fairly cheap way to go, hmm. um, compared to trying to do a DI that and when I say DI, I mean at one of the bigger companies um, who do an amazing job with DI's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you're looking at a considerable, you know, two to three hundred thousand dollar bill for that, and that's just not going to happen on a film like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's fascinating you say that because I think the perception among independent filmmakers is that you know anything digital is always cheaper than than film, and I'm wondering is. With shooting anamorphic, uh, is there anything that ad- where where are the added uh, expenses or difficulties when you're making a low budget movie? Um, I mean, on the production end, is it more expensive or more cumbersome to shoot anamorphic than to shoot digital?
1: I I really don't feel that it is, and I feel like I would have probably lit the picture very close to the same regardless of um, whether I was shooting a a two eight four or a you know, uh, which is probably what I shot most of the film at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, four when I could. Um, there's a lot of night. Yeah. You know, very dark stuff. But, you know, for me on these low budget films, the lighting package is almost the same package every time. Like, if you really work hard with the with the vendors, they're incredibly generous to independent film, mm-hmm. and you know, I can. Uh, um, so the lighting package is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have the same crew size and um you know i approach it the same way basically um and i don't find that it's more expensive really
0: what what does your lighting package on a low budget film like this consist of
1: well on this film it would have been um i believe we had two 18k's two 6k pars and then probably a few 1200s um you know 575 stuff like that just probably two of each of those uh a decent kino flow package and um and some uh, you know a lot of china ball mm-hmm. action um so it's sort of like really big units to use for day exterior and for day interior and then a lot of really small units for the um you know for the night interiors. Mm-hmm. and uh, there's not a lot in between being used really
0: mm-hmm. and how about the what kind of camera package did you have?
1: It was um, the anamorphic lenses were um, these Joe Dutton lenses that now Panavision owns. Um, They're really beautiful, old anamorphic lenses. They have a certain... I mean, technically they're sharp, but they have a softness to them that I really like for this kind of story. Um, They're they're lower in contrast, and they flare beautifully. Um, Even the sky will flare them sometimes, but it really renders... Beautiful image with that. Um, and then with those are um, you know PL mount lenses, so you, we use the movie cam compact, mm-hmm. and it was one camera show basically. We had a backup body, which we employed for two days. For one, for the fight scene, and one for a scene with a fire. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's all one camera.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, how long was the shooting schedule on the movie?
1: This it was twenty-two days. Mm-hmm. We shot in twenty-two days, and. You know, keep in mind that we had, um, you know, Hal Holbrook, who's incredible in the film, was uh, only with us for 10 hours a day because of his schedule, uh, which was really important to make sure that he's doing well. Um, you know, he's an older actor now, although he's in amazing shape, actually. Mm-hmm. But it was so hot. It was August in Tennessee. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was sweating just standing by the camera. Um you know, there's sweat in the film, and it's real, I mean, and, and it's great. I love seeing, you know, these scenes of how with sweat on his face, and it's not uh, something with makeup. It was he's just really sweating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, 22 days, um, 10 hours a day, basically, of shooting time is was the norm because he's in almost every scene.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, <laughs> I think among independent film producers, think uh, there's sort of a, bias of thinking that, you know, digital is faster and things like that. Did you With that kind of schedule, did you get any pressure beforehand to shoot high def or something like that instead of animals? No,
1: Scott was committed from the very beginning to shoot film. Mm-hmm. He wanted a very homemade, organic-looking film, mm-hmm. and we never discussed digital at all. Um, and the producers were incredibly supportive of the whole process. They embraced all of it that we brought to them. Mm-hmm.
0: And you mentioned shooting in uh, in rural Tennessee, and uh, a lot of the exteriors in the movie they have a really beautiful green and blue and yellow palette. I'm, I'm wondering how much of that was by design and how much was dictated by the locations where you were where you were shooting.
1: Well, in some ways it's both. I mean, the locations certainly we were taking our cues from. The one thing I will say is that you know when I initially read the script, I sort of had this um, the initial thing that came to my mind was more Um, soft, um, perhaps even trying to experiment with stockings behind the lenses, Um, maybe flashing the film a little bit. I mean, really going old-fashioned with it. That was my initial sort of gut reaction in the beginning. But then we started looking at um, some William Eggleston photos. Um, Scott immediately, when I brought that up, said, I do not want that at all. um, I feel like I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not a film, you know. We don't want to do things we've seen before, and it's really important to me to have the rich color of the of the ground, the grass, the the, the blue sky. All that is really important to the story, and um, and darkness is particularly important to the story. So I, I don't want milky black. I want it to be really deep black. When we see black on the screen, I want it to be really deep, mm-hmm. and so. Um, we began shooting tests with that in mind, and um, and so I did everything I could within a photochemical process to enhance those colors. But.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of shooting on location in Tennessee, uh, you know, a lot of the movie is, you mentioned the darkness, but it's also, a, a ton of the movie is in pretty bright sunlight, and I was wondering how <laughs> difficult that was to control and... <laughs>
1: It's really difficult yeah. on a film like this. I mean, you don't have a lot of big equipment um as far as rags go and things to put overhead. Um, it's funny, you know, when I first started shooting um I'm mostly a self-taught cinematographer, so you know, I would watch when I was a camera assistant guys lighting on the set and I you know like, wow, how am I going to do that when I get a chance to you know shoot and it was always like how you know how do you learn to light you know how is that going to the funny thing is though that that lighting is something you you learn and you you can do and it stays sort of consistent all day you light an interior and there you go you know it's done mm-hmm. but a, a day exterior turns out to be the most challenging thing you do which sounds ridiculous mm-hmm. because it's just daylight and but to keep something consistent all day and make it look the same from cut to cut is really difficult mm-hmm. um, and um it was a big challenge in the film um to do that I think with uh the limited and, and also we're in eastern Tennessee where the weather's changing you know throughout the day, you know um so that doesn't help either. Uh-huh.
0: and how did you how did you get around that because it is it's actually a pretty consistent look and I mean from watching the movie, you yeah. wouldn't necessarily know that you had those problems
1: right. Um, it's just care- really careful planning, figuring out where the sun's going to be throughout the day, and you know if it is out, and um, you know trying to work with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I often you know work with uh, uh, rags, doing bounce, bouncing the natural light that's there instead of doing a lot of lighting uh, with with units for day exterior, especially on a film like this. Again, more of that homemade sort of look, and and I didn't want the scenes to be. Uh, to look lit that mm-hmm. were exterior so um, you know and then and then of course there's quite a bit of scenes that happen on the porches and that right. helped a lot I made sure that the location would have a north facing porch um, so that we would be able to, to take the sun and bring it back into the porch mm-hmm. um, so if you have a north facing porch um, you know there's never going to be direct sun on the porch and mm-hmm. so that helped a lot in those cases Mhm. Um yeah, so.
0: yeah, how much collaboration did you have with the production designer on the movie?
1: Um she was fantastic mm-hmm. to work with and um we we collaborated a lot. We looked at some images, some still images together. Um again the William Eggleston book. Um you know, and and we we you know, we arrived nearly the same time. I think she came a few days before I did, but it it meant that we could work together a lot and and she also, Scott is a great communicator, uh, the director, which is fantastic, and he really communicated what he wanted to both of us, and um, Mara and I both really got it, and we worked well together, and, and uh, I hope we can work together again mm-hmm. down the road, that's for sure.
0: And were there any other uh, challenges in terms of shooting the movie where you did in, in rural Tennessee? Did you have any problems in terms of equipment, crews, anything like that, or was it...
1: Well, one challenge you have on a location job like this is that you you know, you know, want to shoot film tests, of course. So, you know, what I usually try to do is bring the camera in a week in advance. Again, on a low budget, you don't have much room for that. So mm-hmm. you're sort of begging the, the Panavision to send the camera early. And and then, um, you know, you, you kind of get only one shot at a test. So you really have to know sort of what you're going for, shoot a test around that. Because it's going to, by the time it gets to the lab and comes back, you've got to really make the decision right away and start shooting. So, Mm -hmm. um, the other advantage, though, to having the camera there a week ahead of time is to shoot um, a lot of the exterior landscapes that you saw in the film were shot that week. Uh Um, Often I take the camera out probably every afternoon Mm -hmm. with a camera assistant. I also get him to come a week early. And,. we went out and shot every afternoon um, mm-hmm. these landscapes, and you know that was a lot of conversations with Scott knowing what he wanted during prep. I would go out and shoot stills and bring them back and we start looking at things he liked what I liked and then I was able to just freely go out with the camera uh every afternoon for a week and shoot and so a lot of that stuff is shot before we even began um, and then during production when we could we had a a young cinematographer Cooper who would go out and shoot some of that as well if we if we knew what lens we weren't gonna use uh-huh. for a couple of hours. So um because we didn't have uh much ability to do that. So
0: and what kind of film stocks did you use?
1: It was Kodak and um it was fifty two eighteen for the nights and um fifty two oh five at the time for the day day exteriors. Mm-hmm. And um we t- I tested both. I tested Fuji and Kodak, and basically, when I do a test, I like to shoot in the environment we're going to be filming. So I went out to the location, shot some tests with a uh, with an older man who was a stand in, mm-hmm. and then we uh, we put it on the screen and look at it, you know, together Scott and I, and determined, you know, which would look best for the film mm-hmm. that we were trying to tell. And I um, I also. Felt like that I was really going to have to because of because of the anamorphic format, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier you know, I was going to need to rate this stock at 500 to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that going into it. So um, I felt like the the, uh, the high speed Kodak held up better in terms of ha- rating it at 500. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to retain the black that I wanted. and But then I ended up I printed it on a Fuji stock, which yeah. is um, their standard stock. I find that it has deeper blacks. Mm. It doesn't have the contrast range that the Kodak print stock has, but it has a, a slightly deeper black. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of my cheat. Yeah. I was able to, to shoot it you know, at 500 and then print on the Fuji, and it gave us that black that mm-hmm. I was looking for and then the highlights burn a little more but I knew that wasn't really going to be an issue in the film that we were going to be able to control those and and that you know it wouldn't be a factor.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the blacks, another thing that's striking about this movie is you've got a number of scenes that take place at night in the shack with Hal Holbrook, that where you let it go very, very dark. Uh, there are scenes where you've got you, you, sometimes you just barely see his eyes. There are subtle. <laughs> you have uh, you know there are night interiors in the shack where uh, you know Abner just he barely registers on screen, and, and you get you get a little bit of his eyes, and but it, it works really well because you get a sense of just how alone and powerless this hmm. guy is in the darkness and in his environment, and. Uh, You know, I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of these night interiors and if you were ever worried about going too far with it because uh, at times it's a very bold movie in terms of how much you don't see. I mean there's there's stuff in this that makes Gordon Willis in The Godfather look like, you know, Lords of Arabia. I mean it's really dark.
1: Uh Scott will be happy to hear that. (laughs) He really wanted it dark. Um, (laughs) See, anamorphic's not more expensive if you don't light. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, darkness was really, really important to the film. And these are two really dark men uh, that the film is portraying. And, um, you know, Scott uh, and, and myself, too, I mean, we just, you know, for this kind of film, don't prefer the big. You know, Hollywood night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's, I remember there's a scene when Lonzo comes to knock on the door at night. And, you know, we had set it up so that it was going to be just the conversation with them mm-hmm. at the door. And then Scott wanted Lonzo to walk away. And I said, mm-hmm. wow, man, I mean, it's really, it's going to be black. And he's like, that's fine with me. I don't care. I, mm-hmm. You know, um, <laughs> so he really embraced it and sort of uh, gave me the license to go as dark as possible. And, and I, I feel like we really went there with mm-hmm. it. I mean, it is, there are definitely some very dark scenes, but I feel like it really um, contributed to the tension and to the the story. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the film is the um, television. There, there's a scene when Lonzo's watching television and his wife comes in to talk to him about the farm and, um, it is just incredibly dark, yeah. and um, the, it's only lit by a TV light sort of source, and um, it's an interesting scene to watch, I think, because there's a moment during the scene, at least for me, when I was watching with an audience specifically, where it really becomes kind of nerve-wracking because it's difficult to see what's going mm-hmm. on, and um, I think it really contributed to the tension of that scene Yeah, to, to, to have that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and you mentioned watching the movie with an audience. I'm kind of curious about uh, if you're—I don't know how many times you've seen the movie at festivals or things like that. But the scenes with uh, Holbrook in the shack again—they're so—they're so dark and they're—they're they're very, very subtle. And I mean, I mean this as, as a compliment. I think that they're—they're <laughs> they're beautiful, but they're so subtle that if they're—if the projection isn't perfect, yeah. I'm wondering if it even yeah. registers, or if you've had pro- problems in that. In that way, I, like in terms of, you know. I
1: haven't seen one of those screenings. I'm sure they've had them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know that's always something that you um, that's in the back of your mind when you're making a film. I mean you know it's but but I have to say that I try to really push it out because you know yeah. we you, I think you have to stay true to the process, make the film we're in a lab, obviously that's optimal conditions when you're watching that, right, but I think there are. Plenty of theaters that have the correct projection. And, um, you know, yeah, in my hometown, they probably wouldn't see much of this movie. (laughs) I think, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, um, but I think you can't really think about that too much. And um, it's been amazing watching this film with an audience. Um, Every time I would say, well, I've seen this enough, I'm not going to watch it. And I end up sitting there through the whole thing. It's just... Um, I still like watching the film, and um, it's really amazing to watch it with an audience in particular.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know it's won a lot of film festival awards, and I think it's kind of a testament to the power of kind of classical storytelling, both in terms of the, the screenwriting and in terms of visual storytelling. That it, it's kind of a testament to the fact that audiences are not, you know they will still watch that and be completely compelled by it because it's not a Particularly fast-paced movie by, the, <laughs> no. by standards of yeah. you know most of the things that come out now, and it's also, um, you know, in terms of the visuals, you guys, it's a lot of you know fairly classical compositions, and you don't there's not an excess of cutting necessarily the way that you might expect, and, and things like that, and so I think, um, you know, again, like I said, it's sort of a testament to the power of of old-fashioned storytelling. At the same time, and you you probably sort of answered this a little bit, but uh, with independent films um, now, uh, most of their audience, even if an independent film gets a fairly decent theatrical release, most of its audience is going to be on video even, or worse, on the internet or (laughs) whatever. And uh, are you able to push that out of your mind too, or do you you think about how that's going to look in those kind of formats?
1: Yeah, I have to say, Scott and I were very determined to make a film for the screen, Mm -hmm. and you know it's a good question because the film will probably probably more people will see it mm-hmm. in video, but yeah. we set out to make a film for the screen, and that's what we did and so we had characters on the edge of frame, and we pushed all those limits, mm-hmm. like you know there's not a lot of super close ups in the film right um you know Scott and I specifically talked about um you know I said to him like let's identify three or four scenes that are. That truth that deserve a close up like you know so the audience doesn 't get tired of seeing close ups right. because then when you cut to the close up it has no impact mm-hmm. um, I find that a lot of films now are there's so many close ups yeah. that you tend to lo- they just lose their impact, mm-hmm. so I wanted the the close ups to really say something when we got there, and I feel like we did a great job of holding out for those, mm-hmm. and I feel like now when you see a close up of pal in his face that's within his face and there are some in the film right. um it's a really powerful moment to study his face and see you know the age on his face and that's another thing that Scott really was important to him was to not have a lot of makeup in fact i'm not sure that we used any actually but um you know it's um he pointed at his the corner of his eyes one day of of Scott's own eyes and and you know he said these you know wrinkles this is one of the most important part of the parts of this movie, mm-hmm. and boy, that's really freeing as a cinematographer to not yeah. be be concerned about uh, you know having to glamorize someone to mm-hmm. really make it real. was uh, was an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: It, it seemed to me as a viewer that uh, the approach he took in terms of using the close ups uh sparingly also applies to the camera movement in the movie it, there's not the camera movement in the movie is fairly subtle and it it seems like it only occurs when there's a purpose behind it and I'm wondering if that's if what your philosophy was going in about when you would move the camera and why and how much
1: yeah it is, it, the film is very purposeful mm-hmm. i mean you know Scott as a director is you know he's trying to manipulate the audience he has no problem With that, like he really wants to manipulate them. He wants to be every composition and every camera move was very purposeful. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a scene when Hal is on his bed at night and he's cleaning his gun and he's telling the story of he's telling the story to his dog about falling and being, um, you know, uh, living through the night. Uh, He broke his hip. He couldn't move. And he's telling his story and and the camera's just barely you could probably barely see that it's moving, right. and it's just slowly creeping in during the entire take um, and that I think helps draw the audience into his story um just mm-hmm. to to have that small camera move on the way in and it was very purposeful and um you know and for me, by the way, that was one of the most incredible performances in the film mm-hmm. i mean i the first take was, you know, I was just blown away watching Hal through the viewfinder. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was a real treat. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that reminds me of another interesting aspect of the movie, which is there are a couple of uh, fairly brief but fairly important flashbacks in the mm-hmm. movie where you see uh, Abner and his his wife. Um, yeah. And those are, have a very different look from the rest of the movie. And what was your they approach do. to those?
1: Well, that you know, we wanted them um, for one thing, you know, the 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 memory images, which are their flashbacks, um, are you know, when we when you see a memory or when you think of a memory, you know, you get these glimpses of things. That's what we were trying to do, just you know, glimpses of a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there were scenes. Um, his wife is played by Dixie Carter, their real husband and wife, and mm-hmm. and uh, and very much still in love. I mean, it's amazing to watch them together. And so that it, – it almost brightened Hal up because she was there because mm-hmm. she was only there for the couple of days we shot those. So it was really amazing to watch his transformation as well. It worked for the film. Mm-hmm. But he um, – yeah, you know, I wanted him to be a little brighter. I wanted to have the lens flare a little more and and the the focus to be in and out more. Like So it's it, trying to give the sense that it's like you're trying to catch a memory from your past um, you can't necessarily you know most people don't have photographic memory, so you can't remember every detail, so it was about you know the little pieces of the detail and and trying to get um yeah, and there was slightly warmer and flaring lenses and that kind of thing
0: mm-hmm. um, you know <laughs> speaking of Hal Holbrook, one thing that every review of this movie mentions and every you know everyone who sees it comments on is the sort of uniformly fantastic performances in the movie not just him but yeah. the whole ensemble and uh i'm wondering what as a as a cinematographer you know what do you do to try to create an environment where the actors can thrive like that because it's a movie where there's not a bad performance in, there's not even a less than great performance in the movie really down to yeah. even the small parts like uh uh i think it's Barry Corbin who plays yeah. his friend um, oh he's incredible, yeah. You know, and yeah, every
1: actor I yeah, it's we always end up talking about Hal, but every actor is so amazing in the film. Mm-hmm. Um for me it's probably the first film I've worked on where every actor is that good. And um, you know, even down to Tony, the phone man, right. who's fantastic, you know. Um And it was, it's such a pleasure to watch that through the camera Mm -hmm. and know that you're making a good film. I mean, you know it while you're seeing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not always the case, you know, but Mm -hmm. in this case, you know, you could feel the performance. It was just, you know, coming through the camera. Um, But yeah, I really, I enjoy talking to the actors. I enjoy trying to make them comfortable, you know, um. I don't know if there's anything specifically I could say but the, the the set is fairly quiet and relaxed. Um there's certainly no yelling going on or anything <laughs> like that. It's even though we only had 22 days to shoot, um you know, it's all very well planned and um you know, I think the atmosphere on set is pretty relaxing, mm-hmm. really.
0: Okay, well uh, jumping ahead from shooting to the post process, uh
1: you know, again, we what
0: What's unusual about the movie in this day and age isn't necessarily that you shot it in anamorphic 35, but that you also chose to not go with a you know digital intermediate or <laughs> any of the other modern you know digital finishing touches that are almost mandatory on movies these days. And you mentioned the economic reasons behind that, but I was wondering also if there are you know creative reasons behind why doing post photochemically is is more appealing than than digitally.
1: Yeah, I think for this film it was, um, again, getting back to that organic feel that we were going for, and I think the photochemical process um, lends itself to that. I feel like, you know, um, sure, there's scenes that I would probably put a window here and there and, you know, um, do a little dodging and burning on the mm-hmm. film or whatever, but, you know, it I, I love that it... Um, you know, I, I love that it looks the way it does. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't really need it. And if, you're, if you shoot it well, you don't need to do those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love, I I, th- I personally think it does look better still, mm-hmm. the photochemical process. Um, I think that the DI is a really powerful tool, and I hope that we're going to continue to make it better. I mm-hmm. hope that we're not going to just say, you know, 2K is good and we're, you know this is good enough for cinema, so we're gonna leave it there. I really hope we continue to push the boundaries um It's interesting to me it's always you know film has been held up as the standard for many years now, and people are always trying to get to film. Uh-huh. I feel like why don't we try to get beyond film right like why don't we you know why don't we invent a digital camera that's beyond film? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have a post process that's beyond film? Like, that's what we should all be striving for. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love film, but at the end of the day, if you put a tool in my hand that's better, I'm going to use it. Mm -hmm. Um, Personally, I don't think we've found the tool yet that's better. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I look forward to when we do. Um, But in the meantime, I'm going to strive very much to shoot uh, film stock, which I think is the best way to shoot a film, and I'm going to continue to uh, as far as the photochemical process, I think that was very specific to this movie, and I think that um, I'll continue to use that on these ti- these kind of movies. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a very character-driven film without a lot of effects in it, I think that it makes um, sense to do this. And I think, um, you know, I spoke to um, Lance Accord recently about Where the Wild Things Are, and he used a digital intermediate for that film, which was his first one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I understood why he did that. I mean, he was doing a lot of day for night and a lot of things that it really helped him tell the story by using that tool. And I think, you know, it, we're we're all trying to find what is the best tool for the story. Mm-hmm. The story is the most important thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, where was the post work on the movie done and how long was the post process?
1: Um, we did the Answer Print at Deluxe with uh, Harry Muller who I've worked with several times before and boy you want to see a smile on somebody's face um, come to the lab these days and see if you know do a photochemical and Mm -hmm. Harry was just smiling ear to ear every day when I saw him He was Uh like you know because those guys don't get to practice that much anymore Um, Mm -hmm. they're often now just finishing with a DI um, Mm -hmm. you know and and trying to sort of um, get it through the lab you know sort of babysit it through the lab in a way Um, so this was great and he really loves telling stories too. Um, you know, uh, when I say that I mean the, the, about the film, you know, like he's in, you know, I try to get him on the same page that I'm on and we talk about the film and um, you know, he contributes his part to the film too. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it was just great to do that process with him because he doesn't get a chance to do it very often anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: And when you this is actually getting sort of off the subject of that evening sun a little bit, but I was just curious when you did a movie like say uh, Swimmers was also anamorphic, right? Yeah. And did that one? Did you do a photochemical finish on that, or was that a DI? And...
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that film because that we we <laughs> I came here a lot to this building where we uh-huh. where we are. Um, that film was meant to be a photochemical finish, mm-hmm. and um, when they were trying to finish it, they they basically they ran out of money mm-hmm. and uh post logic um came on board as a producer, and they were beginning their uh d i process at the time mm-hmm. and so they they contributed basically you know the the finish of the film okay. um so um I have to say in the beginning, I was very resistant to that um, i'll always wonder um i'll always i think wish we had done a photochemical on swimmers but in the end i used you know the tools that were given and uh, i think we still made a good film mm-hmm. um and it was one of post logic's first DIs. i think they had been doing it a year or so um so it was a, you know it's an interesting process mm-hmm.
0: well i guess my my last question about that evening sun i probably sort of know the answer to but i'll <laughs> i'll ask anyway i mean given given how well the movie turned out and all the accolades it's received and everything you probably don't have too many uh Regrets about the way you did it, but I, I am curious if you found that there was any downside at all to doing it in the kind of old school fashion that you did.
1: Um, yeah, it's easy to say now that the film turned out so well. Right. That I don't have any regrets that. <laughs> um, but I have to say, no, I really don't. I mean, I really love the way this film turned out, mm-hmm. um, and so and Scott does too. And I think, um, you know, it's exactly what you know he wanted the film to look like. You can't you know as a cinematographer you can't do better than that if if the director tells you this is exactly what i saw mm-hmm. you know um he loved the process as well and um yeah i really don't have any any regrets about it and even though we had a very short time period and no money it was still um it was such a collab- collaborative effort on everyone's part mm-hmm. including the actors that um you know it was great it mm-hmm. was fantastic i'm looking forward to doing another one with scott mm-hmm.
0: Well um as people listen to this the movie's making its way around the country and limited release and uh, as you say it's definitely a movie that's designed to be seen on the big screen so I really would recommend to people that they go see it on the big screen find the theater it's playing at and check it out because it's a it's a beautiful movie and uh thanks for coming and talking about it. Yeah, thanks. All right.